<laughs> we have to do this. I have. <laughs> Did you hear that laugh? I like laughed like a, an old man. <laughs> like a game show host. I know. <laughs> oh, moving on. If you take a look at the wheel here, you've got all kinds of prices. <laughs> Okay, I have so, so many notes. My chaser is so fucking long, so we need to start. Okay. All right. Welcome to SVU Pod, especially heinous. I'm Tasha. I'm Gabe. We. Yeah. And we're just going to fucking get to it because I have a feeling this episode's going to be a little long. Yeah, it's going to be long. Um, your nails are pretty. Um, <gasps> Thank you. Yeah. So we're at season two, episode 15, Countdown. That song played at my wedding as these doors opened up. Yeah. Like right before I walked down the aisle. I know. I remember. I was there. Uh, I wasn't telling you. I, I was like you there in my outfit holding the shit like <laughs> up in the front. <laughs> you and okay. Kenny. Oh, my fucking dad. <laughs> oh, OK. Let's do this. OK, go. So we open on a dark New York night. This bougie. Hey, couple- that's what I wrote. this bougie couple is caught in their car behind some construction and the lady's giving the dude some shit about taking a shortcut and he's giving her shit for taking so long to get ready and she's like why are you in such a hurry some of your girlfriend's gonna be there and he's like god i hope so (laughs) i love that (laughs) he was being such a dick i know they hate each other yeah, they have troubles, but we're not here for that, even though I want to know everything like right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's take a hard right and have a seat and be like, guys, I just want to be in the back seat. Like, let's go. there is some dark shit here. <laughs> Tell me everything. Never yeah. mind. I'll see it on Dateline in a month. Oh, right. <laughs> so in front of them, a van stops abruptly and something falls out the back of it. And she's like, did you see that? Mm-hmm. And he's being this big boy, baby brat. And he's like, I didn't see it. Yeah, I don't and know. the van effing peels out of there, leaving whatever the thing is on the ground. And just as they were about to drive over whatever fell out, this fucking hand reaches up from the ground, like out of a zombie, horse, zombie thing. Yeah. yeah. Where it's like, yeah. and it slaps onto the hood of their car. It's a goddamn human. It's a person. It's a human person. <laughs> That fell out of the van. Yep. So now we cut to the hospital. We've got a Benson and Stabler walk and talk with another detective. Benson's wearing the cutest little shearling lined denim jacket. I was like, I rewatched it right before we started again. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that jacket. Oh. It's just this cute little, it's like little cropped, you know, like they obviously caught her in her downtime. Yeah. Because normally she's in like a smart blazer, but oh, it was so cute. Mm-hmm. So the Vic's name is Sophie Douglas. She's fucking eight. Yeah. And she's been missing for three days. The van owner cuffed her to a bar inside the van, but she managed to get her hand out. Her mom thought that her ex had taken Sophie. So they initially thought it was a custodial kidnapping thing. Mm-hmm. Mom's in the waiting room while the doc is doing a rape kit on Sophie and Ben and Stabler walk right into the doctor's room with Sophie in there. And it's like jarring to it see is. that, you, you know, yeah. a rape a rape kit's happening and, and the room is colorful and cheery, like made for kids, you know, like yeah, a she's doctor's like, she's office like in the, for kids. Yeah, like in a little kid bed and like. Yeah, she's holding this stuffed orca whale. Like, oh my God, it was, it was like emotion inducing. Yeah. So obviously Benson and Stabler are uncomfortable and we know it's a particularly sore spot for Stabler because, mm-hmm. because he has kids and he gets to feel more. Yeah. They're like both turned around facing the wall like because the kids in like stirrups and stuff. 
you know, mm-hmm. it fucking mm. sucks. So Sophie had fluids on her inner thigh and <sighs> Olivia goes over to Sophie to distract her while the doc takes pics and talks to Stabler. The doctor confirms to Stabler that Sophie was raped. Oh, theme God. song. Theme song. <laughs> like, I hate that that's the last sentence. And I'm like, a theme song. I don't know why I even put that in there all the time. I just do. What? That the theme song hits? Yeah. It's like, why? Making their way. Through there, no, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> They're in the precinct now, and Benson and Stabler are giving the squad a lowdown of the case. So it's a stranger child abduction, confirmed rape, there was tranquilizers in her system, and she was kidnapped four days ago. Some credits are still rolling through, and fucking Jim Gaffigan is in this, which I was like, oh no. <laughs> I vividly remember the image of him, mm-hmm. and I knew yeah. it was coming, but I just, I'm always like, oh my god, it came this soon, but we've really been plowing through these episodes, so. Right, yeah. Also, this is my absolute worst nightmare to ever happen, ever 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 like this whole situation including the tranquilizer thing like for your kids or just in general for my kids yes okay so all they really know about this the kidnapper is he has a white van um no make no model there's no witnesses either the people that were behind him in the car didn't get a license plate what an unoriginal fucking creep oh i drive a windowless white van (laughs) fucking take little kids (laughs) i hate this guy but that's something i hate about him i hate him for worse things (laughs) that's what i like to do and i'm sitting there watching going oh did you offer her candy (laughs) you know i want to troll this dude from right off the bat before we know anything more so i'm just like working with what we've got here right yeah okay so craig and sends munch and toots to the dmv to look up known pedophiles who drive vans duh all of them craig and wants benson and stabler to interview sophie today but olivia tells them that the mom thinks sophie is too traumatized to talk mm-hmm. and craig like dude you gotta go anyways like I, this is obviously painful but like in situations like these every second fucking counts you know yeah benson stabler and cabot are at the child advocate center they got sophie in there they're having a hard time separating the mom from sophie but they convince her to cabot's like let her hang out in the viewing room while benson talks to sophie and so she can like watch on the tv you would be peeling me away from one of my kids yeah like i can't fucking imagine like oh we're having a tough time no shit yeah sophie and olivia are in the little room and obviously sophie's like uncomfortable but benson's doing fucking benson and talking calmly and making her feel safe so she asks sophie questions about the man who took her so it was a white dude with like super gross teeth yeah or super scary teeth right sophie says that she met him while she was on her way back from school but got sidetracked by a puppy and i was like oh how original but i also get it like i know i mean i'd get at almost 40 i'd get in somebody's car because of a puppy i'd be like yeah i'll come in there and check it out like i almost got kidnapped by two dudes in a old ass buick over a couple of pennies they threw on the ground and i was like did i even tell you that this is really fuzzy but probably tell me again okay so i was playing in my front yard with some neighborhood kids i was like i don't know 11 or 12 or something old enough (laughs) i might have been 10 we were being babysat and uh, we were just playing in the front yard. A fucking big old boat ass car comes up with two dudes in it. And they're like, hey, do you want some money? And they were like throwing coins out of the window to like get me to come to the curb mm-hmm. to get the coins. And I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, a couple of coins. Luckily, luckily, the fucking babysitter was looking out the window while she was washing dishes and saw and ran out mm-hmm. and was like, get away. You know, and the car fucking took off. Oh my fucking God. Pennies, dude. Gabe. Pennies. I know. I have two children to worry about. Like, don't (laughs) do this. 
we cut to the viewing room. Benson Cab and the mom are watching on screen and you can hear Sophie saying she doesn't want to talk about it anymore. And the mom is like, oh, my God, stop. It's too hard for her. And Stabler and Cabot are trying to calm her down. And they're like, yes, it's hard, but like we have to get this done. Stabler radios to Olivia, who's wearing one of those curly cord earpieces. Mm -hmm. And he's like, bro, hurry up. We need a location. So Benson's trying to get Sophie to tell her where the van was or could she see any street signs or anything? Yeah. Sophie said she couldn't see anything and the dude didn't even talk to her until they got to the quote room. Yeah. And he had told her it was her party day and there was lots of balloons and candy and stuff, but nobody else was there. Sophie said that she had cupcakes and punch, but then fell asleep. And we're assuming she was drugged. And she woke up to him staring at her, telling her it was time to get ready for picture day. He made her put on all these costumes and would like help dress her. And she kept telling him that she could dress herself. And then she started crying. And uh, then it be cut to the viewing room again. The mom is losing it, of course. Stabler and Cabot try and stop her. Stabler like holds her and was like, we need to catch this dude. Uh, but they need the info from Sophie. But Stabe's calm strength while he held her, whispering yeah. to her and like, did he kiss the top of her head? I don't even remember. <laughs> He's like, I get it. Do you want us to catch the man who yeah. did this? And she's yeah. like, I want him dead. And Stabe's is like, then you've got to help us. Yeah. So day three was what the man called her, quote, special day. And he made her take a bubble bath. Sophie starts crying, thinking it's her fault for wanting to see the puppies. And then the mom busts in. She's like, I'm fucking taking her home. She can't handle this anymore. I don't want her to relive this. And they leave. Then it's just like Benson, Stabler, and Cabot. And Cabot's like, we can take legal recourse if the mom is uncooperative. Which is like, ugh. Cabot's cold-blooded yeah. in every situation, though. She is like, the law, the law, the law. That's it. Mm -hmm. So when the little girl got super upset... She goes, please don't tell my mom. And I hate what this fucking does to kids and mm -hmm. how they can turn it on themselves. Like, how do we teach them that it's not their fucking fault? I don't know. But it makes me sick. Yeah. Stabler's like, you know, I, I wouldn't put my girls through it. Mm -hmm. And then Olivia like rolls her eyes and he's like, you don't know. <laughs> You know, <laughs> it's like we get it. Parents. I can't imagine either. Yeah. So they don't have much to go on. So Stabler says they need to re-canvas starting where he abducted her at. Right. Munch and Toots are eating Chinese food in their car, looking up pedophiles who have white vans. It's like a mini lunch break slash stakeout thing because they're also yeah. they're waiting outside of this guy's like business building or auto place or whatever. Yeah. They're parked eating Chinese food and Munch is focused on the case. Toots cannot stop talking about like where the fuck the fortune cookies are. And then Munch is like didn't answer him the first couple times. And he was like, look, I told them to skip it because they're always stale. And Toots was like, what? <laughs> yeah. So they're about to talk to this dude, Oliver Tunney, that was a clown who molested children. AKA Jim Gaffigan. It's like young ass Jim Gaffigan. Yeah. They put a fake belly on him. Did you notice that? They did? In the interrogation room, he was sitting there and it was like a fake belly and it looked totally fake. <gasps> I noticed it the second time I watched it. I was like, why did they do that? Huh. It has corners. <laughs> <laughs> so Jim Gaffigan has guested on Law & Order Regular, SVU, and Criminal Intent. Oh, really? Yeah. He loves that shit, I guess. <laughs> so he says he's been in Connecticut painting a house all day. And they're like, hey, you're not supposed to be clowning. It's part of your parole. What's this face paint? Because he had like a little bit of like grease paint on his neck. And he's like, this is house paint. I told you what I was doing all day. Toots goes in the back of his van, opens up the door, and there's paint shit everywhere and a goddamn clown suit. Yep. And the guy's like, Jim Gaffigan goes, come on, guys, give me a break. It's like, <laughs> you didn't run a red light. <laughs> yeah, I know. Was... You dressed in a clown suit and molested kids. <laughs> Can we just let this one slide? Give me a warning. Oh, you guys. <laughs> so they take him in. Yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 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 
So they're in the interrogation room and Munch and Toots have Gaffigan in there with them. They found balloons, etc., party supplies in his van. Mm-hmm. He denies it, like the having a party for Sophie and whatever. Benson and Stabler pop in with a newspaper that Gaffigan had in the van and it just had the children's events circled. They have witnesses that he was at the county fair in Norwalk. The witnesses filed complaints about how he was touching their kids, but also that is kind of an alibi for him too, because that means he couldn't have abducted Sophie. So he's like, see? So yeah. he's off the hook for Sophie, but he's definitely on the hook for being a piece of shit garbage fuck who was touching kids at that county fair. Yes. SEU has informed Connecticut and the dude is in trouble either way. I'm like super glad that they wrap up these side stories for me because I'm always wondering like, well, what happened to the guy that is a piece of shit, but like, isn't the guy that did this thing? Yeah. You don't know? just be like, all right, he's not the guy next thing because I'm left there. Yeah. I'm wondering what the fake couple in the car in the first. Did they end up going to their fucking dinner party? Did they ever get therapy? Like then you have like a molester that you, get, like, you have to wrap this up for me. I can't. Oh, my God. Maybe that traumatic event brought them back together and they were like we need to get therapy like life is too short or they were like life is too short we don't we hate each other yeah let's and then they amicably divorce but then they end up really hating each other because like the financial aspect of a divorce really oh my god yeah the high of like having that traumatic thing happen by the time the divorce hearing happens it's worn off right and he's like i'm not gonna give her 50 percent." and she's like are you kidding me i built you yeah yep yeah and then Ugh, I built you. And then she poisons him. So he's dead. Thank God. No, you know what happened what? is they had this moment. It brought them back together. But then she came back to her senses because he still continued to cheat on her. But she pretended like she didn't know. And then she fully gone girled him. Damn. Okay. Okay. Benson and Stabler's re-canvassing went like fucking shit. Broad daylight, nobody saw anything. Sophie's mom had called and said she had wanted Sophie to have more time to heal. And she's like, she's, you're not going to talk to her today. So everybody's like, well, it's fucking pretty late and there's no new leads. So like, let's call it a day. Yeah. And they're all like doing this walk and talk to the elevator about like the stuff that they're going to do. Olivia makes a cell phone call to this guy, Michael, obviously because they have a date and asks if they're still on for dinner. Munch asks her how it's going with this guy. But all she ever does is like cancel on him. So anyways, Munch and Toots and Benson and Stabler pile into the elevator to leave. And just as the door shuts... We all knew this was going to happen. Craig and opens, he like stops the door from shutting and he's like, everybody stays. And I'm like, oh shit, what happened? Yeah. A dude in a white van grabbed another girl. So we're at this convenience store where the girl was abducted. Darkwing Duck is there asking questions to the owner. I can't, (laughs) I just, every time I see him, I'm like, (laughs) you're the duck that fights crime. I think the brim on his hat gets bigger and bigger. (laughs) Yeah. Mrs. Guzek is the missing girl's mom. She had popped in and left Kirsten in the car. This dude was American, about six feet, and drunk. And the owner doesn't remember any distinguishing features about the dude, except for that his teeth were very, quote, unfortunate, which I thought yeah. was hilarious. Like Austin Powers. I know. It was and like, I'm like, Ew. keep your references current. At the time, it was current. I was oh, yeah. just like, oh my God, that's, oh yeah, that's right. That's on top. I saw that in the theater and was like, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> There is a security camera, but of course it doesn't work. The dude paid 20 bucks in cash and he remembers because it's the last customer that he had and because the dude wanted quarters back, like $2 and quarters back. Munch tells forensics to take the top 20 bucks out of the till to check for prints. And it's not like this guy would need an excuse to remember every last detail about the guy anyway. This is television's SVU. Right. Yeah. We don't need your reasoning. We just need you to remember absolutely everything about this person. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 
Toots is outside questioning some kid who looks like Colin Hanks holding his trumpet case like it's a baby. Mm-hmm. Not Chet Hanks, the son Tom wishes we could forget. The good one, Colin. Okay. <laughs> this kid heard a bottle smash on the ground and the van door slammed shut and the van peeling away. He also thinks the license plate started with either an H or a B. And I'm like, you are so helpful. This guy was like a pretty good little actor, actually. Like the way he he was like, yeah. it was an H or a B. Can I bring him inside? He like yeah. really had these like great movements. Again, he's holding this musical instrument case and he's like, you mind if I go? The cold's really not good for her. Yeah. Toots is like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Munch comes out and the partners start speculating what happened. Munch thinks the quarters are for a payphone and Toots wants forensics to pull LUDs on the nearest payphone, which is like, whoop, there it is. Mm-hmm. They also want them to take the quarters out and dust them along with the phone. It is the details, mm-hmm. folks. All of those quarters to be dusted. Oh, can you imagine? Like they run all the fingerprints. All the quarters are going to have fingerprints on them. Yeah. So Benson and Stabler are at the Guzek apartment. Both parents are obviously very upset. She's like, "Oh my god, I just popped in the market for a second, and it was cold, and I let her stay in there, and I can't believe I did that." And the mom's blaming herself, but the dad is too because he had asked her to stop and grab him some smokes. I swear, I'm sympathizing, but the guy says. I asked her to stop and pick up cigarettes for me. Like he has <laughs> never smoked a cigarette in his life. I love when the, when they have actors that have never smoked and they're like, oh. <laughs> <sighs> so the mom didn't see anything. They reassure her and listen to her relive the awful encounter. And dad gives them a photo from their last vacation and says, she just turned eight. And I'm like, fuck, just like Sophie. So they're in the squad room and they're making tons of copies of Kristen's picture. Munch is hard hovering. Munch is sure it's the same dude as the who kidnapped sophie white van pedophile bad teeth toots said the guy risked another kidnapping so soon because he was drunk like the store owner had said and probably saw kirsten there and took advantage of the convenience but they all think this dude is a pro because he's so flexible like he used that lame-ass puppy con on sophie and did an impulse grab on kirsten yeah toots is gonna go look more into the description of the dude and munch is gonna go look for vans with a license plate with an h or a b and it's fucking 3 a.m Toots hasn't had much luck. Apparently, there's a lot of pedophiles with manky-ass teeth. Toots literally says, got a lot of bad-mouthed mothers here. Buck tooth, snaggle tooth, <laughs> mangle tooth, missing tooth. And it makes yeah. me think of the shrimp thing from Forrest Gump. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pan-fried, deep-fried, stir-fried. There's pepper shrimp and lemon shrimp, shrimp soup, shrimp stew, shrimp salad, shrimp and potatoes, shrimp burger. I know that shrimp whole gumbo. thing. You know that thing on TikTok that's like, um, why the fuck did I retain all of that? I can do that whole, every shrimp that he says. <laughs> really i don't know why i memorized it when i was a kid Ugh. so stabler goes to make coffee and then he gets like pissed he's like why do you always do this munch munch put the top back on the coffee tin and it was empty mm. stabler throws at him and munch goes it's just my way <laughs> <laughs> why do you think i've been divorced three times <laughs> so stabler heads out to get coffee but a shit ton of files ordered by benson come in and when I say a shit ton, I mean like a fucking wagon full of files. Yeah, just a mountain of them. Dave's pops into the crib, I'm guessing. They seem to be taking like 30 minute sleep shifts. Stabler wakes up Olivia early because the files got there. These are the dedicated detectives. They have a little loft where they take naps so they don't even go home. They are members of an elite squad. <laughs> I like how he just turned the light on and the, the other person in the bunk bed was like, uh, you know. <laughs> Why, dude? <laughs> so it's 8 a.m. I feel like they're just kind of like showing the progression of everybody being like sleep deprived and like yeah mad and uh everybody gets edgy with each other my favorite is when benson and stabler snap on each other yeah so it's 8 a.m 
fucking munch wants toots eye drops toots is like no that's how you get pink eye stabler said had enough and he's like give him the fucking <laughs> eye drops and stabler's uh, like you can't get pink eye from someone farting on your pillow and olivia's like you can if you do a bare ass <laughs> stop <laughs> yeah he's like live we gotta go fucking talk to sophie now mm-hmm. yeah the mom doesn't want them to but like there's another girl that's missing now so they're like we're gonna we're gonna do it yeah kirsten's life depends on it yep so they're at sophie douglas's house benson and stabler are at her door and the mom refuses to let them talk to sophie stabler pulls out the big guns like right away and he's like dude we can get a judge to compel you to fucking produce your daughter and she was like oh this is what you're gonna have to do but i mean what else are they supposed to do like i feel bad for the mom but what are they supposed to do yeah at this point there's a clock on this other little girl so yeah she's like well that's what you're gonna have to do and she shuts the door on him we're in the judge chambers now cabot and mrs douglas and mrs douglas's lawyer are talking to the judge mrs douglas's lawyer is fully speaking for her she's sure that sophie knows nothing else and cabot insists that they can't know that unless they talk to sophie mrs douglas had terminated the original questioning of sophie early and the mom thinks that sophie has already told them everything that she knows she begs the judge not to make sophie talk anymore she says that it's just cruel and the judge understands the concern for sophie but has to weigh that against another child and grants Cabot the application. Sad violins. Yeah. This isn't something that you can wait until Sophie's ready. Sorry. They have a three-day limit. It would be great if she could take her time and do like her therapeutic shit and whatever, but you can't with when there's that kind of cost. Yeah. So we're back in the Child Advocate Center. Benson is with Sophie in the room again, asking her questions about what they had to eat. And if she recognized any of the takeout food names, mm-hmm. Sophie says that she only had cupcakes, fruit punch, and fucking corn candy. Gross. Sophie does remember a streamer at the party that had her name on it. He had like a little machine that blew up balloons. So we got Benson and Sabre doing a walk and talk. If this dude had Sophie's banner, he would have gotten it made after he abducted her. Mm-hmm. They need to find party stores that rent helium machines, too. Right. Stabler's riveting family side story is him trying to get decorations for his twins' birthday party. Mm-hmm. And he's going to pick some up when they go to the party supply store. And I'm like, that's fucking gauche, Stabes. <laughs> Right. Yeah, he keeps talking about how it's going to be their birthday and how he's going to have to get a present. And But then he's stuck at work. And, and it's like, everybody's fucking like, you took this job. This is your choice to be mm-hmm. doing this. And I get it. Like, you want to be a good dad and all that stuff. You know how you can be a good dad? I don't know. But save Shut this up. kid's life. <laughs> yeah. By shutting up. Stop reminding everybody how you deserve more because you have kids. Mm-hmm. That goes to all of you parents. What? I wasn't listening. I blacked out for a second. What did you say? I, what I is your remember. advice for me? <laughs> <laughs> so Munch and Toots are at Aladdin's party supplies store. No, nope. Munch and Toots are at Aladdin's party supplies. Uh, the front counter lady seems to recognize a dude from the like little drawing and said he had bad smile. Yeah, when he smiled, it was hard not to flinch. So she wasn't there yesterday, but she was there on Friday and the dude had bought a helium tank. Because they were like, yeah. well, don't you have to have his ID for a rental? And she's like, he paid cash and you can buy these tanks now. But Aladdin's Party Supplies is one of the only party supply places that keeps seasonal candy. And she said he had bought candy corn. Gross. Back to the squad room. It's busy as hell. Phones are ringing off the hook. Phones are ringing off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> Phones are ringing off the hook. Toots is yelling to the phone that he wants people watching the store. He's like, I want them. I want them there nine to nine and nobody can go to the bathroom without a burn on. Take charge, toots. Yeah. 
Liv gets a call from her dude, Michael, and she can't talk because it's so busy. And I'm like, doesn't she just know that she could hold the phone up to her face for three more seconds and have a full-blown conversation <laughs> with this guy? <laughs> she should know that, yeah. Stabler's on the phone with Kathy about the twins' party. The whole crew has been working for 36 hours straight. So Munch comes in handy and says that he expanded the perimeter and there's been three autopsies with the exact <gasps> same stomach contents. In different boroughs, right? Yes. OMG. All three strangled after the third day they went missing. All three found in water. Sophie escaped the van on her third day while the van was headed to the East River. Oh, my God. Kirsten begins her third day in the morning. Nobody's going home. This is stressing me the fuck out. They have to find her. Team time. We're in the precinct in front of a giant New York City map. It made me think of Minority Report, like oh how they God. have like the big screen, but it wasn't like that, but it was like a very chic New York. The only thing, because I thought map. this, I'm like, ooh, look at that technology. But then I was like, oh, it's literally just lights. Yeah. In a piece of glass. Because yeah. they were like taping pictures. <laughs> It looked, yeah, but it looked good. Like that was, yeah, that took up a chunk of New York City's budget. <laughs> so they're all going over the three Vicks who were killed. Eight-year-old Rhonda Simmons abducted three years ago in the Bronx, raped, strangled, and dumped in the East River. A year and a half later, seven-year-old Sheila Wells, abducted from Greenpoint, was raped and strangled, and sewer workers found her. A year after that, nine-year-old Kira Bly from Manhasset, same MO, found her in the Sound, which is a body of water by Long Island. Mm -hmm. And then he grabbed Sophie six months later and Kirsten the day after that. The pattern they're seeing is that this guy is accelerating fast. Yeah. There was no DNA found on anyone. All of the Vicks are white between the ages of seven and nine and from working class families. And they were also all cute and outgoing. Mm -hmm. Toots thinks that the dude is probably a loner, impulsive, socially marginalized. So they're kind of confused. Like he's moving around a bunch. Is he a salesman, a mover? They think he's gaining confidence because he's moving up in affluence, like the areas that he's mm -hmm. taking these kids from. A dude we don't know pops in, and I'm like, he must be some kind of dispatcher or something. I have no mm -hmm. idea. But he tells them very officially, so like they all know him, we don't. Yeah. But he goes, the one PP wants to go public. He's like, hey, everybody, you know how we all like went to the same school together? We've grown <laughs> up together. I just wanted to pop in and let you know that one PP. <laughs> yeah. They're really pressing me, guys. They're like, we know how stressed you are right now because we all know you so well. Sorry, Dave. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Dave. I'll see you at your anniversary party next week <laughs> all of us we pitched in <laughs> tell cynthia hi oh my god how is she how is she <laughs> so they all bombard craigan in the bathroom about it like he's coming out of a stall and they're like hey the evidence that they found is theirs they don't want the public to know stuff like the van etc because the dude will dump it and if the morning paper comes out with it comes a buttload of phone calls from false leads and assholes Mm -hmm. So Stabler thinks going public could throw the dude and he may start making mistakes. So they all, they're kind of on different ends of yeah. whether it's a good idea or not. Stabler thinks that because this guy has a ritual. Cragen wants them to release the composite sketch of the perp and the description of the van, but leave out the timeline. He's asking the pop-in guy, by the way. Like, that guy's somehow there. And Cragen's mm -hmm. asking him. And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> it's Dave. <He's> yeah. <laughs> got a fucking clipboard. He's like, I'm on it, Cragen. And we're like, you're on what? We don't know you. <laughs> He's like, what do you mean you don't know me? I've worked here for 18 years. We grew up together, all of us. <laughs> it's like the SVU characters, but Muppet Babies. So they yeah. like all went to the same daycare. Oh, I want you to draw that. Craigan has the striped socks. <laughs> it's Craigan. Special victims unit. They're all going to hang out together. <laughs> Muppet Babies SVU. I'm writing that down. 
Oh, I want to. Okay, we don't have time, but I really want. I'm like, who's Gonzo? Who's Animal? Who's fucking Miss Piggy? Um, because I think we know that Gonzo is fucking Munch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the bear. The bear's toots. The bear. Fozzie? Yeah. Fozzie bear's toots, but he's the one with all the, like, the lame-ass jokes. I guess that's all of them. Never mind. Yeah, Gonzo is uh, fucking Munch. All of his ex-wives are those little chickens that are always around. <laughs> Stabler's Kermit. I mean, just like by process of elimination, I guess Olivia is Miss Piggy, but I really don't. No, I really don't see Kermit and Miss Piggy. They don't work together as them. There's got to be maybe animal. What is that one? um, Maybe animal in in the lady with the long hair that sings jazz. I was gonna say yeah, the like the half lidded lady with the long blonde hair. Yeah, what is her name? Stabler's Animal, the drummer. Is he? I guess yeah. He has a hard time controlling his emotions. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to look. I'm going to do a little more research. Okay. Yeah. Let's keep going on this for now. So Mrs. Simmons, one of the murdered girl's mothers, is in the precinct. Mm -hmm. It's Benson and Stabler's turn to talk to moms. So they're in the the talk room. I I still don't know what to call that conference. They're in a conference room. Yeah. Mrs. Simmons says that no cop ever had a lead on who kidnapped and raped and killed her daughter. She brought Stabler her photo and he was like, oh, I think you should keep this. And she's like, no, this came like three weeks after she was killed. I want you to have this photo in your pocket when you fucking catch him. I hard gas at this and I thought oh my god did the dude that killed her daughter send this photo to her? That's right yeah that's what I thought at first and then I was like oh wait no it's school photo. Yeah they're in the squid room <laughs> they're in the squad room everyone's fucking on edge. Yeah. Nothing's coming back about the payphone forensics and Cragen is mad about how dirty everything is they're all just exhausted. They're up each other's asses there's no sleep and that will do that to you. Munch chimes in crime lab report from the liquor store where Kristen was taken there was a 911 call at the payphone at 802 and then a 10-second local call at 7.53 p.m. to a Mr. Saul Garner. Toots is like, let's go wake him up! Woo! So they're at Saul Garner's house. Saul mm-hmm. is very New York-y. Mm-hmm. He's pissed, rightfully. It's five in the morning. Munch and Toots are there, and he says he never got a call. He goes, maybe it was my girlfriend checking up on me. Maybe it was a wrong number. I didn't get no message, I swear. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. So we're back at the precinct. The phones are ringing off the hook. The papers publish some shit, so everybody's calling in. Craigan tells Munch, Stabler, Toots, and Benson to get the hell off the phones. He needs them for a cold hit that came in. It's from a body five years ago. So there's six victims that they know about so far. Ten-year-old Bonnie Weathers from Queens. It's the same M.O., except she wasn't dumped in water. She was dumped in an abandoned warehouse. This was before he wised up and moved to water, you know, to wash away the DNA. Yeah. So they have DNA on her. They think that she could be his first, and that means it was probably close to where he lives and a little sloppier. Cragen wants Munch and Toots to re-talk to everyone from this case, and Cragen also wants Benson and Stabler to head out to Queens. Benson and Stabler walk and talk on the street. Stabler's bitching because he never grabbed the twins a present and I'm like, oh my God, who cares? I literally wrote, Stabler never grabbed the twins a present. Who cares? Yeah. Pop into a diner to talk to two queens. Um, to talk to like, two I get, queens. <laughs> like, I get you want to be family dad, but you're a fucking SVU detective and the clock is ticking on an eight-year-old's life. Stop. Let mm-hmm. the twins talk to their therapist about it in 20 years. Yeah. They're going there no matter what, so. Yeah. I mean, because their mom died. Ugh. <laughs> Was it hard to kind of, was it hard to see Kathy when she came in? Oh, I was like, Kathy, it's hard to like make fun of their struggling marriage. Like, I want to keep being like, just 
treasure her now go home early yeah but we have to be where we're at and this is where we're at so they pop into a diner to talk to two queens svu detectives tatum and becker and this pair of bizarro world benson and stabler mm-hmm. are like do you hear something Duh. they're just fucking yeah. being dicks sounds like somebody's going over our heads <laughs> yeah and stabler's like chill out our boss has told us to do it but Stabler's like, we know the important stuff isn't in the files. It's, you know, and the guy's like, oh, yeah, it's in our heads. We're just too lazy to go pick it up. This is the best because fucking oh. Benson slams her fucking fist onto one of their sandwiches. Stabler's like, I was going to do that. <laughs> yeah. She goes, look, I know we're on your turf and I would be prickly about it, too. That's why I had every intention of coming down here and schmoozing and kissing a little ass. But we have got a ticking clock. Do you understand? My partner and I have been on this case for three days straight and we're too damn tired to get into a pissing match. So we just need to know if you're going to help us or not. Yeah. And they're like, all right, what do you want to know? Yeah. It's like, there's no time for this. Like, this girl's going to die soon. Shut up, you guys. See, she's strategic with her anger. Even Stabler was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Benson and Stabler don't have time to re-interview all the 200 people in the case. So they're like, what's the shortcut? They didn't like anyone good enough for it. Just regular creepy dudes in the area. But there was a dude down the street named Clayton Mills with shitty teeth. <laughs> the other detective said Joe Hayes had shitty teeth, too. <laughs> And he was dating the babysitter at the time. He did a stint in Attica for assault. So the two detectives wish him luck. And then I'm like, you guys had this shit the entire time. This is not an extra pair of gloves in the Rockies. This is a little girl's (laughs) life. (laughs) Get it? <laughs> Toots and Munch roll up on Joe Hayes. He's welding some shit. He doesn't own a white van, but he's like, I know why you guys are here. What this is about. He thinks that they're making him for all the girls that got killed because of, quote, that little queen's bitch, which is like, dude, Ugh, damn. You gross. Yeah. He's like, dudes, I'm an ex-con. I'm who you go to first. I didn't rape a kid in Queens and I didn't rape anyone now. Right. Regardless, Munch orders a 24-hour detail on him just to make sure. So... Yeah. And we know as we get to know Munch more and more as a detective, we get to know that he's extremely thorough. Yeah. Yep. Except for when it comes to fortune cookies. (laughs) So there's that. And relationships and making coffee. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're at Dawson's photo studio. Benson and Stabler are looking for Clayton Mills. He fucking works there. As soon as I saw that background, I gasped. Yep. The owner says Clayton is kind of like a wannabe photographer, but doesn't really have it quote unquote but the owner keeps him around anyways because he's available like all the time yeah um they do a ton of school portraits year-round and clayton lugs all the equipment around stabler takes out the portrait of Rhonda simmons it's the same background that's in the studio and the boss confirms that they did the photo but clayton had called in sick today oh my god they have some current address for him he rents a room from an older woman named mrs rapaport stabler kind of whispers to benson that clayton uses the school as a hunting ground Music swells. Police fucking use a goddamn crowbar, the same crowbar from last episode. (laughs) (laughs) They found it at the crime scene and they're like, ooh, we're going to keep this. This is a a good ass crowbar. This is a handy little tool. Look at this. We're already using it. Look at this. (laughs) We recycle around here. Carbon footprint. (laughs) We recycle around here. So police use a fucking crowbar to break into the home. All the detectives are armed and rushing in. It's empty. There's balloons and party stuff everywhere. And a streamer with the name Kirsten on it. Oh my God. There's a copy of the day's paper. Blood on the floor leading to the closet. Mrs. Ravenport's in there dead. Benson goes, she must have walked in on him. And Stabes goes, 
I guess Clayton doesn't like surprises and everyone internally groans. Get it? Like surprise parties. Yes. Get it? You guys. (laughs) Duh. It was my idea to bring the crowbar (laughs) and it was my idea to put puns in every episode. Surprise. Surprise. I'm missing my kid's party. Everybody. Is anybody listening? (laughs) It's my twins birthday. He's like, shut up about it. There is a dead old lady here. I wish the twins were here to see this. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're in. He starts collecting the party supplies at this fucking creepy house. Oh my god. He's like, two birds, one stone. <laughs> Woof. Okay, squad room. Mrs. Rappaport went to Atlantic City to gamble. I guess she does this a couple times a year. She lost all of her money right away, so she came back a day early and walked in on Clayton with Kirsten. So Clayton killed her. Stabler wants to keep going by the three day clock yeah. rather than, like, you know, it being extended or shortened because of Mrs. Rappaport. Right. But Benson thinks that there's no clock now that he was caught by somebody. That, yeah. Yeah. She could be dead right now or he could be taking her to kill her. Right. And it's weird because earlier Stabler's the one who brought up like, let's put this out to the press because it might throw him because he's very meticulous. Yeah. And now he's like, no, let's stay on the same time frame. And it's like, uh, no, this dude is thrown off. And now he's really thrown off. Anything could happen. He could be just like, I got to mm-hmm. get rid of this kid now. Right. So Stabler thinks that Kristen has four hours left to live and wants to proceed with the assumption that Kirsten, Kirsten. is still alive. So he's like, guys, let's split up. I'm going to go to my kid's birthday party. <laughs> No. <laughs> Stabler and Benson are like, you know, screw you, nah, screw you. And Craig is like, whoa, get some sleep, you know, and they continue to oh, fight. It was so great. It was such a great little moment of what I felt like was reality. Yeah. So he's like, Olivia, go outside and get some air. And he's like, Elliot, talk to your wife. And he's like, what? And he turns around and, and Kathy and the twins are there. <laughs> Stabler's trying to get food out of the vending machine to be a good birthday dad. Kathy is amazing as per usual. She's like, he's like, I'm sorry, I have like two seconds. And she's like, we'll take him. And then Olivia jumps in and says they have something and Stabler's got to go. Yeah. And Kathy's just smiling like, that's my, that's my husband. The, Saul, the guy who said he got, he didn't have a phone call. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> Apparently Clayton called Saul's pawn shop because he needed some traveling money. Clayton won't drive in New York City, but wants Saul to meet him in Brooklyn. Right. Now we're at the Red Hook Warehouse District. All kinds of people are on the roof and surrounding areas covering this place. Munch is in the van with Saul and they're waiting for Clayton to show up because Clayton's going to be unloading all kinds of bullshit that he stole from his landlady that he murdered. Mm -hmm. Saul's talking to Munch and he goes, oh, for this stretch, I considered he might, he might be a thief. But a kid raping killer? Trump hands. Not a clue. (laughs) Munch calms Saul's nerves by telling him that there are sharpshooters on every roof, so he needs to chill out. His white van pulls up. Oh, my God. Saul is so anxious, and he looks it. Munch is telling him to calm down and to stop looking at him and talking because Munch is in the back. So this guy is, like, talking over his shoulder. He's like, you're going to fucking give me away. Yeah. The van stops because he sees Saul talking to someone. And he just gets suspicious, and he's like, bye. Squad cars Mm -hmm. come in. They block him into a bunch of trash. It's a dead end. Benson and Stabler Mm -hmm. pull him out of the van and Stabler is looking in the back of the van for Kirsten. He opens the doors and he's like, Kirsten, honey, sweetheart, my heart was pounding. And he Mm -hmm. finds her in a princess costume and she's out of it, probably drugged but alive. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. That's not what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Stabler takes her out. Clayton does this creepy smile at her 
and Toots Ugh. like hard shoves his head down into the back of the squad car. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was disgusting. Yuck. He's gross. They like cast this guy really good. Yeah. So we're at Rikers Island and Cabot's there with Clayton and Clayton's lawyer. Clayton is played by the same guy who played the angry redheaded dad in Uncivilized season one, episode seven. The one where the boy is raped and left in the park and he's leading a mob outside of that sex offender's apartment. Remember? He's got like this like gingham Unci- shirt on and he's <gasps> yeah. We talked about him for like the five piano minutes. Guy? No, not the piano guy. The, de- the pedophile didn't rape the kid in the park. It was the- <gasps> That's right. And the dad was like, what are you going to do about this? Whatever. And they're like, calm down. Yeah. I didn't realize that that was it him. Was his- it- this is the same guy. Whoa. I know. Good call. I thought he looked familiar. So Clayton wants to discuss a deal. Cabot's wearing all black and is like, this fuck isn't getting shit. We're not making any fucking deals. And then Clayton mm-hmm. says there's actually five, not four girls. And is wanting to use that as a bargaining chip to get a deal. Well, earlier in the episode, they said that there was like six that that we know of. I know. And that was confusing for me. Yeah. whatever. Writing glitch, whatever. A fifth victim whose body has never been recovered is now out there. Cabot tells him that four bodies is enough for him to get the death penalty. And then in this like creepy, clicky voice, he goes, I bet the mother would like some closure. Clayton won't even tell his lawyer the girl's name, Mm -hmm. but she was Clayton's first. He won't tell the name unless the death penalty is off the table. This whispery, creep-ass motherfucker. Yeah. He was so good at being fucking creepy and gross. Oh, yeah. We're at the DAA office, question mark? Yeah. (laughs) Kevin wants that one whiny-ass bitch to authorize this deal. (laughs) Yeah, the guy... We know who he is and like we refuse to now we've done it a couple times. I don't want to know. Remember he like threw under the bus that one thing. Yeah, he's her boss. Yeah, he sucks. Mm-hmm. He is a whiny ass bitch. Yeah. But he doesn't think that his constituents want this. Cabot really wants to find and give the mother closure. Yeah. This dude's like all the mothers of the victims want him dead. Ugh. So Cabot brings in Mrs. Douglas, Sophie's mom. Yeah. She comes in and says that Clayton raped Sophie and killed her childhood. Mm-hmm. And she wants him dead, but not knowing where sophie was for three days and nearly killed her she can't imagine what the poor mother of the first mystery victim has been going through all these years yes so she's like i want him dead but i want to help like i want you to help this woman oh that's so fucking spot on yeah so now we're in a wooded area benson stabler and clayton and stuff are around they're digging up this area that clayton must have told them and they find a little red shoe clayton like does a weird little creep ass smile mm. and they send clayton back so now benson and stabler are standing outside of the woman's house and she opens the door before they could knock and that's the end yeah like she must she must just be always constantly waiting for somebody to come up to tell her something uh, you know i can't imagine i mean your mom i don't fucking know what the hell uh, that would be can I you can't. imagine me as a fucking mom how i my hair would be falling out i mean diane was gone overnight for 24 hours and i was losing my mind and that's not even a human i would die i wouldn't be a good mom before having kids i was like is this a good idea for my mental health <laughs> turns out no yeah all right i'm gonna get into this chaser because it is long it's a long chaser okay let's do it okay So in reading about this episode after watching it, I read that for the killer in this episode, writers pulled traits from a real life killer. (gasps) Who? Tell me. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. So here we go. It's serial killer time. And we are talking about the most prolific serial killer in United States history, Gary 
Ridgeway, a.k.a. the Green River Killer. Whoa. I don't know really much about the Green River Killer at all. This is such an awful story, but I got a wave of fucking joy just now from you saying that. Because I was going to text you earlier and be like, how much do you know about the Green River Killer? But then I didn't want to like give it away if you did know something. Yeah, no, I'm very pumped for this. It's soups fucked. Let's just get into it. Okay. July 15th. 1982, two boys were biking over the Meeker Bridge, which is located over the Green River in the suburb of Kent outside Seattle, Washington. Mm -hmm. They looked down on the water and stuck on a branch. They saw the body of 16-year-old Wendy Cofield. (gasps) She had been strangled with her own clothes. Wendy Cofield is the first documented victim of the Green River Killer. When interviewed in custody many years later, the killer told police that he said he thought he had killed at least three women before Wendy and left them in the street or alley but when he didn't see news about it he assumed that they had survived damn i speculate that they were sex workers so nobody cared because he pretty specifically killed sex workers Mm, that's probably exactly what happened yeah but also his memory isn't great like there's video of him being interrogated and like not even interrogated like telling the full story once he's finally caught they're like come on gary come on you know and he's like i don't remember because Mm. it means that little to him like it's not a huge event for him on August 12th, remember, we're in 1982. On August 12th, a worker at a slaughterhouse along the Green River found the body of Deborah Bonner. That same day, 16-year-old Opal Mills went missing. August 15th, a couple of fishermen were fishing in the Green River when they saw what looked like two mannequins in the water. Nope, police came down, and while they were processing the scene, Detective Dave Reichert of the King County Sheriff's Office, who was the lead investigator, found another body on the bank of the river. So the next day, they were like, that's five women in one month. Damn. So on August 16th, 1982, they had determined they had a serial killer on their hands. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is why he got the name the Green River Killer. There were no more bodies found in the Green River after this, though. But the name had been given. Yeah. All three women found on August 15th had been strangled and sexually assaulted. Marsha Faye Chapman, 31, had been in the water over a week. 17-year-old Cynthia Hines had been in the water for three days. The third was Opal Mills, the 16-year-old girl who had gone missing days earlier. Mm -hmm. So Detective Riker's boss, Major Richard Kraske, put together a team of 25 detectives from surrounding jurisdictions based on where... To Richard Kraske! (laughs) (laughs) he drives an ice cream truck covered in human skulls that's that's like a bad one for this he he rides a white horse perchance to spot a lady (laughs) to dick blasky or whatever the fuck to brill brasky he was a son of a bitch based on where these victims were last seen they would start the focus of their investigation on the strip which was a 10 mile stretch on the pacific highway south it was busy with pay by the hour motels strip clubs and it was where sex workers conducted their business so all these tips started coming in missing persons reports for sex workers pouring in in an interview detective reichardt described how difficult it was to track these down since many of these women had multiple aliases some with no last names multiple changes of address, changes in appearance, and just working a, what they called a circuit that took them from Seattle to British Columbia to Vegas. So they could have just moved on from the area. Mm-hmm. September 15th, 1982, Mary Bridget Maine, 18, disappeared. She was eight and a half months pregnant <gasps> and out of all of Ridgeway's victims was the only one to have been buried in a shallow grave. I don't know if this is because she was pregnant. He never gave a reason for it. 
um, that I found. Maybe, you know, maybe he's just a really nice guy that just needs to be, you know, like um, cared for. <sighs> By the end of 1982, <laughs> 15 girls would be missing or found dead. I have these quotes from Ridgway because obviously all of his confessions and everything at once he did confess were recorded. So Ridgway recounts how he disposed of them and all of the others. He said, quote, I placed most of the bodies in groups, which I called clusters. I did this because I wanted to keep track of all the women I killed. I liked to drive by the clusters around the county and think about the women I placed there. He would strip them of evidence and take their jewelry. He'd leave the jewelry in the women's bathroom at his work, and he said he liked the thought of another woman finding it and wearing one of his victim's jewelry. Oh, my God. What the fuck? So these clusters that he put in the woods and other areas, it would be three, four, five bodies. So whenever someone, Mm -hmm. like when they did find one, they would find one and then like 10 feet away, they'd find another one and then they'd find another one, you know? So on April 30th, 1983, 18-year-old Marie Malvar was abducted. There were multiple versions of who Marie was and who her boyfriend was. I saw three different things And they all kind of had different recollections with the same through line. But one was like she was a sex worker and her boyfriend was a pimp. And another one was like they were at lunch together. And for some reason she got in this guy's truck. And it doesn't matter. Anyway, that day Marie got in a pickup truck at a bus stop on the strip. Her boyfriend was nearby watching the encounter. And he had a strange feeling about what was happening. So he followed the truck. And he ended up losing them and Marie disappeared. That was the last time he saw her. Four days later, the boyfriend and Marie's dad went searching for her. They found a truck that was very similar to the one that Marie's boyfriend saw her get into. And it was parked at 34-year-old recently divorced truck painter Gary Ridgway's house. So the Mm. two guys go to the police in Des Moines, Washington. And a detective went to question Ridgway. Everything seemed normal and fine to him. And that was it. He legit was like, hey, is anyone in the house with you? And Ridgway was like, nope. And the cops like, all right, thanks. Bye. That was Mm -hmm. it. It was done. He'd already killed her. Hmm. So let's dive into this monster for a minute. Okay. Gary Ridgway was born on February 18th, 1949 in Salt Lake City. With his parents and two brothers, he moved to Seattle at 11. His dad was a bus driver and bitched about sex workers on the strip. And Ridgway has memories of riding the bus with his dad and his dad leaving him on the bus alone to go off with a sex worker. There was also another account that Ridgway's dad worked in a funeral home and would talk about a co-worker who had sex with the dead. So this is supposedly where he learned of necrophilia. By all accounts... Wait, there's necrophilia involved? Yeah. Uh... By all accounts, he had... Of course, a domineering mother. And at first I'm like, I roll, blame it on the mom. Uh, But she was pretty not great. She was very controlling. His dad was passive. So the experts are like, okay, he had displaced matricide and this is why he was killing. And I'm like, fuck you, get therapy. You know, he was Mm -hmm. a bedwetter till he was 13. That is common among serial killers. 57% of all serial killers report to having been bedwetters when they were kids. I wet the bed till I was 12. I'm a good person. Um, So (laughs) when he would wet the bed, his mom would give him a cold bath and scrub his genitals like to get him clean now he's a fucking preteen and she's still doing this so that's really considered sexual abuse the kind of contact she was having with him her job was fitting men's suits and she would come home and tell him about guys getting aroused when she was doing this and how their fucking genitals smelled she was just like really inappropriate she she dressed very provocatively which is fine but it also with her behavior 
apparently was very confusing for him. Now, this isn't only his accounts. Like if this was his account strictly, I'm like, you're looking for an excuse. Like you're looking for a reason and a finger to point because he did do this kind of shit where he like, you know, you don't want to take ownership of being a fucking psycho. But right. there are other people that could attest to her odd behavior. And she was very abusive to his dad. So there was like Oedipal shit and everything there. At this time, he was having fantasies of killing his mom, but also having fantasies of having sex with his mom. So he was a really fucked up kid. He also had an IQ of 82. Average intelligence, I think, is like 90 to 110 or something like that. So 82 is low. He developed classic serial killer adolescent shit. He hurt animals. He threw rocks at his brother. When he was being interviewed, this is all stuff that we didn't find out until after he was caught. But he confessed raping a girl when he was a teenager, but she couldn't ID him. So he got away with it. And also as a teen, he lured a six-year-old boy into the woods, pulled out a knife and stabbed him in the torso. And when he pulled the knife out, he wiped one side of the blade on one sleeve of the the kid and the other side of the blade on the other and he told the kid that he wanted to see how it felt to kill somebody <gasps> the kid fucking survived and he spent weeks in the hospital like he had this giant gash in his body his liver was all fucked up but the kid didn't know he he did not know him like he didn't know yeah. ridgeway ridgeway didn't know him it was just a random kid at the park so he couldn't id him to the cops and ridgeway also oh, eventually fuck. said that he had drowned a kid back then as well and it was never confirmed but two kids were found in a lake near his home but the reason it wasn't confirmed is because there was no proof that he had killed them mm -hmm. he graduated high school at 20 and joined the Navy. He married his first wife, Claudia, but after a six-month tour, he came home to find that she had cheated on him, even though he frequently had sex with sex workers in the Philippines himself. But he left the Navy and moved back to Seattle and got a divorce. Fun fact, but something I'm not going to go into, he tried to become a cop. Yeah. He started working for the Kenworth Trucking Company, painting trucks, and remained there for nearly 30 years years. That's just one of the many things about him that don't fit into the cookie cutter of what they usually think a serial killer looks like. Mm -hmm. No, he had a steady job and had a lot of long-term relationships. So in 1973, Ridgway married his second wife, Marsha Lorene Brown. She said- How do these- fucking guys always end up having multiple wives. Yeah, I don't know. The first marriage, obviously, it was very short. Marcia said that there were times he'd be gone at night for long periods of time and come home late, dirty and wet. He also regularly carried black tarp in the back of his truck, the same kind found covering some of the bodies of the Green River killer's victims. Together, they had a son, Matthew. Matthew would find out about his father's crimes at 26 years old. And he remembers him as a regular dad in a police interview, Detective Scott Strathy asked Matthew if his father ever attended his school functions. And Matthew goes, quote, I don't think I ever remember him not being there. Did his son end up being a serial killer? No. His son is apparently, as far as anybody knows, a well-adjusted dude. He lives out in California. He's married. So his parents ended up getting divorced. And he didn't have like a close relationship with his dad when he was a kid. He actually didn't mm -hmm. develop a closer relationship with him until he joined the military himself. He became a Marine. And then he and his dad kind of like bonded more. He still saw him like every other weekend or whatever growing up. But yeah, his dad wasn't hugely influential in his life, but he was always there. Matthew only has positive memories of his dad. So then when he became an adult, they got a lot closer because mm -hmm. of like the military thing or whatever. Everyone who talks about Gary Ridgway says he is disturbingly normal. He doesn't come off creepy at all. He's friendly. So during the time in his marriage to Marsha, 
Ridgway became fanatically religious. He joined a Baptist church and he was like trying to convert everybody and just got like super into God. And that obsession eventually faded. Like he got really hyper-focused on things. So when that was his focus, like it was more that than anything else. Did he stop like killing during those time, that time? He hadn't started yet. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So the couple divorced in 1981. And this is when Gary became very much a regular on the Pacific Highway South Strip. Okay, now we're going to go back to 1982. 1982 was when the first bodies were found. Okay. Yes. So now we're in 1982. It's the end of the year. The Green River Task Force has been disbanded. The only detective left is Dave Riker, who's on the case. They disbanded it like there's money stuff. They had someone in custody who had failed a polygraph and they really thought that they had their guy, but they didn't like fully shut it down. They were just like, we need to disband this like crew of 25 people working on this shit. Yeah. August 29th, 1982, Port of Seattle police approached Gary Ridgway sitting in his parked pickup truck at 1 a.m. It was on a deserted dead end block near the airport. He was briefly questioned, you know, like, what you doing parked out here and let go. Okay. This was also the same night that Terry Milligan disappeared. No. And a month later, Giselle Lavorne's body was found nearby. February 1983, Port of Seattle again rolled up on a parked Gary Ridgway with a sex worker, Kelly McGinnis. And they let him go with a warning. Come on. Four months later, Kelly McGinnis's body was found. Oh, my God. So now our count of disappeared girls and women is up to 16. I say girls and women because many of these sex workers were mm-hmm. underage, underage. Teenagers. Yeah. Something I read said that he he was looking for girls who were newer to the area and maybe didn't have the street smarts that someone who had been working in that field for a long time would have. Well, and they don't know anybody yet. Nobody will maybe notice they're missing. Right. That's another oh, another reason. Yeah. Oh, the new sheriff, Vern Thomas, was like, this is nuts. We got to put something together again. So $2 million a year was put toward finding the Green River Killer. It's like you've already found him like four times. Yeah. Well, I know. Sheriff Thomas put together a 45-person Green River Task Force. They went top of the line with their computer system. It took up the entire room. It was early 80s. It really did. I saw a picture of it and it was like the size of a walk-in closet. And it took them a year and a half just to enter all of the hard copy information. Okay. So like in the episode, they're talking about any information that gets released and the phones are just like fucking ringing off the hook. They need this big of a task force because people are calling in tips and they have to run down every one of these fucking tips. And they were getting thousands. A month later, a sex worker told the police that she felt like the killer was probably Gary Ridgway because of his sus behavior. Mm-hmm. So they're just putting this, he's got a file. He's one of like 500 dudes that are suspects in this case. Yeah. You know, Matthew found out that his dad was a suspect when he was in like third or fourth grade. And he remembers being like, I just assumed my dad looked like somebody or something like that because there were like 500 people that were suspects. Like there was a huge suspect pool. Yeah. Nobody that knew him thought anything of it, like didn't even consider that it was possible. In March of 1983, 17-year-old topless dancer Cindy Smith disappeared. In the first three days of April 1984, four more bodies were found in the woods near Star Lake. So sex workers in the area still having to earn their money were behaving really cautiously, but Ridgway Mm -hmm. adjusted his ruse. Sometimes he would pick up a sex worker, have sex with her and pay her and then drop her back off because then she's going to tell them that he's safe. Yeah. Over the years, at least 50 women asked him if he was the Green River Killer. 
one of the things that oftentimes that they would do is the women would ask to see his ID. He would open the wallet and cover his name Mm -hmm. and then show them his ID. And above it, he would have a photo of his son in his wallet so that they would trust him. They'd be like, oh, he's a family man. He would also keep a few of Matthew's toys in the car for them to Mm -hmm. feel safe. Like he's like, oh, yeah, I'd have like a couple Star Wars things or something in the back. And, you know, they would see that I have a kid. One time he even had his eight year old son in the car with him when he picked up one of the sex workers. He took her out into the woods and killed her while Matthew waited in the car. I feel like I remembered hearing about something like that. Probably. Like this is... How old was the kid? Eight. Eight. Yeah. I feel like I remember this. I read this like update on his son and it said that he maintains a relationship with his dad. Yeah. So Matthew's sitting in the car and Ridgeway comes back and he just told his son that she had decided to walk home. Another time, Matthew was asleep in the car and Ridgeway went out to the woods to one of his spots Mm -hmm. to rape one of the victim's bodies while his son slept. This is something that he did fairly regularly to what he said was to try and keep himself from having to kill another person. So it like helped keep him from getting caught. So he would have sex with these bodies for a few days after their death until he said when the flies would get too bad, he would stop. Oh my God, I can't. I know. Should I leave it? Should I take that out? No. I took... Absolutely not. Okay. Like some of the shit that I read and that he said, I was like, oh, that's more than I want to say. No, you need to keep that in. Oh, what a fucking weirdo. So by June of 1983, the count of girls and women having disappeared was at 26. Mm. There were so many close calls, like so many times. At some point in 1984, Rebecca Guay reported to police that Gary Ridgway tried to strangle her. She came to report two years after she had had this experience with him. She told the cops that Ridgway picked her up and took her out to a wooded area for sex. She even know where he worked because she asked to see ID before getting in the truck and remembers his job, like Kentwood Trucks. Mm-hmm. Um, she was able to break free and get to safety at a nearby mobile home. She said, quote, His face looked white, clammy, cold. His arms and everything was cold. His hands, he was a totally different person. And he kind of made me think that if he did kill me, since he wasn't interested in me sexually before that, he'd probably try to have intercourse with me after I was dead. Because that was another part of their encounter is that um, he couldn't get it up. She got that necrophilia vibe. Yeah. That's crazy. The timing on when this happened differs in things that I read, but regardless, Gary Ridgway was called in and questioned by a task force detective. He admitted to having dated Gway. That's always what he said about having sex with sex workers. He would say, I dated her. Mm -hmm. He admitted to having had choked her, but said it was because she bit him. But then, you know, he choked her for like 10 seconds and then he let her go. So they also questioned him about other Green River killer victims. And he admitted to having dated one of the victims, said that he had recognized another and admitted to being familiar with the areas where the bodies were found. But weeks later, he passed a polygraph test and they cleared him. So he passed because he's a psychopath and murdering people doesn't register the same way as it would for a normal person. I like need them to stop doing these. I know. I know. Way before this, there was this cab driver who was held and they were like, we got our guy. He failed the polygraph. Yeah. For these murders. I would probably, I'm positive I would fail any polygraph about anything. Me I'm too. Just so, so anxious about everything. Me too. So I saw this interview with a cab driver who was being hard looked at. He fucking 
was like, I have an anxiety condition. This was like an older thing that I saw. So they didn't call Mm -hmm. it what they would now. But he's like, I have this anxiety condition, but I wasn't allowed to take any medication before I was taking the polygraph. So like I would need a lorazepam to like keep my shit together if I was getting a polygraph. Yeah. I mean, if I get pulled over, I like immediately do a scan of like, do I have drugs in my car? No, I don't have drugs in my car. Why do I I think I do just if I'm getting pulled over? I'm the same way. I'm like, oh my God, when's the last time I murdered somebody? Never. (laughs) Right. Never. (laughs) So this cab driver was like, I couldn't take these meds. They said that they never let people take them because it will just flatline it. And I'm like, that's Mm -hmm. why we take them. Mm -hmm. But anyway, oh, even after this, though, even after he passes the polygraph, everything, he's still on the suspect list. Like Mm -hmm. there's still too many things that they're like, we still have eyes on you. Then Detective Reichert gets a letter in the mail from a Florida death row inmate, Ted fucking Bundy. Ew. Ted says that he could help get in the mind of the quote, river man. Bundy himself had admitted to killing 28 women in the Seattle area. And Reichert's like, cool, see you soon. So Ted talks and talks in the third person about what this guy could be doing and thinking. Detective Reichert was like, um... Ted, I'm pretty sure that this is stuff you actually did and you're trying to stay your execution. So regardless, Mm -hmm. he didn't really give them a whole lot, except they felt like it was kind of a serial killer mental state goldmine. Everything that he said went into the files. And I also just felt like it was really interesting that Ted Bundy was like, I'm here to help, guys. What a cock. Mm -hmm. He is such a (laughs) fucking cock. December 1984, the suspect death toll had reached 42 Then the disappearances and killings suddenly seemed to stop. Cut to Ridgway's personal life. Enter Judith. Keep that in mind. March 1986, Ridgway was interviewed again. In that interview, he said that he was fixated on sex workers and they affected him like alcohol affects an alcoholic. He agreed to take a second polygraph, but three days later, on the advice of an attorney, he refused. He just kept coming up and they just kept talking to him, but they didn't have anything solid. So... As they slowly put the pieces together, they were able to connect him to five of the victims, like knowing them, but not necessarily killing them. Mm -hmm. Six months later, Ridgway's second wife went on a roadie with cops to take them to various locations that they had visited together when they were married because Gary liked to have sex outside in the woods parked in random places. Many of the places were places that bodies had been found. April 8th, 1987, police searched Ridgeway's house and vehicle. They had enough to get a fucking warrant, but there was no charge because all they had was circumstantial evidence and zero physical evidence. There was nothing at his house. March 1988, they sent body fluid samples to a New York lab for DNA testing. That shit was brand spanking new. Now, they had samples because they used to take samples to match blood types. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, there's DNA now. Unfortunately, the sample was too small to test. So they, again, started to look at other suspects. And I'm like, fuck you, 80s. Yeah, right. I mean, I I saw an interview with, I think it was Detective Reichert that said we had a finite amount of samples. And so we had to be really mindful of like when we sent it. Yeah. So while they're checking out these other suspects, Ridgway married his third wife, Judith Lorraine Lynch in 1988. Third wife. Okay. Yeah. Judy, Judy, Judy. They married after dating for three years, and it looks like after meeting Judith, Ridgway's killing slowed dramatically. In watching Judith in an interview talk about her relationship with Ridgway, they had what she thought was a great marriage, a good relationship. He was a good guy. Only positive things. So 
he was still killing people, but it became less and less as far as we know. So two in the late 80s, one in 1990 and one in 1998. Meanwhile, dot, 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 the investigation dragged. He was high on the suspect list, but they couldn't pin him. And also he wasn't the only suspect, so they couldn't fully focus on him either. Political funding started cutting and they disbanded the task force again in 1990, only leaving Tom Jensen, a cheerful dad looking mustached early 90s kind of guy. And he carefully preserved the evidence. He just patiently waited as the science Mm -hmm. of DNA testing developed. Nine years later, there is a Seattle crime lab that opened up where they could get results for smaller DNA samples. Boom. October 2001, the test produced three matches to a single suspect, Gary Ridgway, and cops immediately put him under surveillance. November 16th, 2001, he was arrested trying to solicit sex work from an undercover vice cop. In his truck, they found 30 bucks and a pair of latex gloves. He paid a fine and was released. They're fully watching him. They're just getting all of their ducks in a row so they they can nail him, you know? Yeah. November 30th, this is only two weeks later, November 30th, 2001, he was arrested for murder. He was charged with the murders of Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines, Marsha Chapman, and Carol Christensen. So he awaited trial in King County Jail. I saw this interview with Mark Prothero, which was his defense attorney, and he was talking about how he felt right before he met Ridgway. He's like, I'm walking down the hall. I'm going to go meet this guy who supposedly murdered dozens of people. At the time, he was going to be on trial for four, but, you know, they knew that there was going to be more. Yeah. He's like, is this dude going to be scary, full of rage? What's he going to be like? And he said, quote, what was remarkable was that he was so normal. If you didn't know what he had done, you would like him. Yeah. The monster within him was well hidden. After his arrest in 2001, Ridgway initially maintained his innocence, expertly lying to his attorneys, his wife, Judith, etc. But then he learns about science and forensics evidence. Mm -hmm. The DNA found on Marsha Chapman was an exact match. Mm -hmm. It was an exact match. So it was like, Gary, this is you. (laughs) Yeah. So the one day defense attorney Mark Pathero recalls when he was told the truth for the first time, he says, quote, up until this point, Gary had been maintaining that they had the wrong person, that he had had sex with many sex workers. He hadn't killed any. And that essentially was going to be the defense. Myself and another attorney were in the meeting room waiting for Mr. Ridgway. I don't recall what we were talking about, but we both had smiles on our faces when he walked in and he said, oh, you won't be smiling when we're done. I've been lying to you all. I've been manipulating everyone for all of these years. I killed them all. 2003 is when he admitted he was the Green River Killer. Mm -hmm. And this is what his deal was. He offered the truth in exchange for his life. Mm, Just like the, yeah. Yep. He led them to multiple bodies. There's so much to the interviews with him. He said that Maria Milvar, killing her was harder than killing anyone. The pregnant one? No, no, no. Maria Milvar is the girl that got in his truck and the boyfriend followed them. And then the cops went to his house. Yeah. Ridgway had taken her out to the woods and she had scratched him so badly that he had scratches all over his arm and his truck was seen. So he poured battery acid on those wounds to get rid of visible scratches. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. He did stuff like this, like sharing some of his tactics that he used to not get caught. Like if she scratched, he would cut their nails. He eventually started using a ligature as well. Like at first he used a chokehold. Yeah. But to avoid getting scratched up, he started using a ligature. 
once when he noticed his tire impressions at a dump site, he went and replaced all the tires on his truck. He didn't keep trophies, so a search at his house would turn up nothing. And then he also planted evidence. He left cigarette butts laying around and he wasn't a smoker. He drove some of the bodies further away, like to Portland, to throw cops off. What He was successful for a minute because he made them think that the Green River Killer had moved. Right. He even left hotel brochures around some of the dump sites so that it would look like a traveling person. <sighs> Okay. Anyway, when he said, I'll tell you the truth, if the death penalty is off the table, he also w- would agree to leading the police to missing victims that hadn't been found yet. Mm-hmm. So the DA immediately agreed and they took the death penalty off the table for his confession. Mm-hmm. He was tried for 48 murders, convicted for 49 victims because another one was like brought up mid-trial. Mm-hmm. But he confessed to 71. Damn. But it is believed that he likely killed upwards of 90 because, again, they would come at him with like, what about this Jane Doe? What about this body that we found? This seems like you. He's like, I can't tell you if I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember. So after Ridgway confessed, Judith stopped visiting him and immediately divorced him. Yeah. Ultimately, the DNA found on Marsha Chapman is what finally got him. 19 years after Marsha Chapman's body was found in the Green River, Gary Ridgway was sentenced to 48 consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. He is currently 72 and is imprisoned at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. Oh, he's still alive? Yeah. Fuck. I know. Shit. Ugh. Trust nobody. No one. John could be a serial killer. You know what I mean? I thought that this whole time. (laughs) This whole time. (laughs) I really hope not. Fuck, man. Okay, next week we've got season two, episode 16. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. Season two, episode 16. Holy shit. We're like almost done with this season. I know. We're like almost done. What's it about? It's called Runaway. Oh, God. A police officer's daughter runs away and the squad uses the help of an internet journalist to track her down. All right. Well, um, I'll see you then and only then. Okay. Just kidding. I'll talk to you every five minutes for the rest of my life as per usual. Okay, great. We're getting buried together. (laughs) What if we had two caskets? Because I like my own space. What if we had two caskets (laughs) next to each other, but there was a tube so that I could like talk to you? In like a window. <laughs> I want to watch you decay. I love you. <laughs> but it's like the same headstone as well. Yeah. Or we have the same headstone and then John is next to <laughs> me on my other side. It's just like a piece of uh, piece of wood, like kind of. It says like John Crawford and then there are cartoon eyeballs side eyeing <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> and it'd be like, here lies Gasha. <laughs> what about Tabe? Tabe? <laughs> Tarshba. <laughs> There's no R. Here lies Gasha. Here lies garbage. I don't know. Garbage. Garbage. You garbage? Is is that our name? Here lies garbage. Okay. SVU Pod. Follow us on all social media at SVU Pod. Rate and review us. Fucking join our Facebook group, SVU Pod elite squad go to our website svupod.com email svupod at gmail.com hashtag little bit loud beep boop love you love you bye 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 <laughs> <laughs>